Hey, welcome. Um, strange. It's kind of it feels weird being on a Saturday, doesn't it? Hang on a second. Let me just straighten out here. I have to get comfortable. Okay, well, the reason why we're here today, I know there's probably going to be a lot of you there because you're, you're not used to me being here. Um, it's because we have, we're have 78% near the end of this book, and um, it probably averages out to a little over three hours. And I was going to finish it off tomorrow, but the problem was I didn't read last week because I had something going on. So I was trying to figure out whether I was going to do like a big marathon three and a half hour read tomorrow or how I should do this because I was going to start the the other stuff from 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 oh man from Anna Maria, Anna Maria Manalo. But I decided that I was going to break it up into two reading in, in two reading sessions. So that's why we're here today. So if people you know if, if you're not there right right away that's cool, <laughs> you'll find this later. But um, you know, we are going live over Facebook and Twitter and uh, YouTube right now. Um, so I'm going to read uh, for an hour. I'm not going to go much more than an hour. We'll see if I can get through a chapter or a chapter and a half or something. And then tomorrow we'll pick it right up. Same time, 6 p.m. Pacific. And then I think we'll be able to finish the book off, I think. And then next weekend, which would be a regular schedule for Sunday, we'll go ahead and um, start Anna's stuff which is really cool. I already looked over some of the stuff that Anna sent me and I'm really excited about it. That's why I wanted to get started on this week, but give it a couple more minutes for people to come in and then we'll uh, start this session of the read. Let me get over here. Oh my, I got to send somebody the link. Hang in there. Okay. I got to send this link over to somebody. I keep forgetting. It's like senility. I didn't, I don't think I sent anything out to, out to the meetup either, but, uh, Sometimes I've been glued to the TV, like like everybody else. I have been glued to the TV, you know, watching what's going on over the, over the Ukraine. I don't have regular cable, so I'm watching Sky News. Their coverage is terrific. Um, I got to say that about Sky News; they've got really, really good coverage. Because I have like like NBC News shorts and all this on on Peacock. I got the cheapy Peacock, so that's where my stuff's at right now. Let me get this going here. Where, where am I? There we go. That's me. Okay. Let me send this out. My friend, uh, my, 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 my producer, I look good on the screen. Look at that. My color's nice. Anyway, my friend, producer, who's also my producer, took me to lunch today. It was very nice. And, um, okay, let me get this sent to her. Where am I? Where's my live? So she took me to a real nice lunch today. I have leftovers for dinner. I went to Chinese food. So give me a minute. I just saw myself. Where did I go? Amazing how I can disappear. Oh, there I am. Let me shift this over to her. Okay, there we go. Because then I'll be out these text messages saying, well, where's the show? Here is the show. Okay, let me get another person going here. And then, anyway, so we're going to start here. We'll give some people some time because I know you're not used to having me on today. Okay, there we go that one okay god i hope that was the right one i just didn't send this to this guy i was dealing with <laughs> i forgot because i had let's see who did i send this to oh, i did oh, hang on a second i just sent the text to the wrong person <laughs> somebody else i'm doing business with okay this guy's gonna think i've lost my mind 
it's just going to be that kind of day. Anyway, two more minutes and we're off and running on this. So I'll, I'll be on till a little after seven, you know, with it. You know, we'll read up until a little after seven with this and then we'll call it a night and continue tomorrow because that's, you know, that, that was the plan. And like I said, I didn't get a chance to read last weekend because I, was, I, I had something I had to do and Aaron I had to run. So I knew I was going to miss a day. So I wanted to make the day up because the read is going to be probably we're 78% in the book. So we probably have about three hours to go yet. And I was going to do a full three hours. I was going to split it anyway because I would have read last weekend and then this weekend would have been the last, or Sunday would have been the last read. But we're doing that today, today and tomorrow. Okay, just want to let you know. And again, my name is Charlotte and I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal, uh, the Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 35 strong up and down the state of California. And we are also, uh, we also have friends in Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii, just to let you guys know. Okay. I might talk a little funny. I've got a toothache right now and I'm hoping it disappears. Um, it's been about a week <laughs> and I've had it before and it just kind of dissipates away. And then like, I, like it hasn't been around for like five or six months. So hi, Victoria. So it hasn't been, it, it hasn't been around for five or six months and suddenly it, it rudely appeared. Like I said, we're here on a Saturday because, um, I'm figuring there might be three to three and a half hours worth of book read left. And since I didn't read last weekend, I'm going to read today and tomorrow and finish off the book before we start Anna stuff, you know, the following weekend. But, you know, every week we read a paranormal theme book. And this is one of my favorites, Ghost of Flight 401. So uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed it, you know, and uh, tomorrow's probably going to be our last read day with it. Um, I'm looking forward to Anna stuff. She sent me some really, really nice stuff. Like I said, and I'm happy. Okay. You can find my team at CaliforniaHaunts.org or if you want to check out the radio site, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Also, we have a YouTube channel. So if you're watching from YouTube, there's a little ghost down in the right-hand corner with a magnifying glass. Click on that. That'll make you a subscriber so you can be up to date on every show we do. And come on in and visit or go to the YouTube site. Visit the YouTube site. It's got like there's around 200 shows right there. Okay. All right. So this time I'm going to start. Whoa. There goes my headphones again. I'm gonna probably gonna to have to get new headphones because I can tell already they're actually got. Oh, you'll see me in those white things, so I get new headphones. Okay, so here we go. I'm gonna start reading and check the mic in a spot where I can read and see what I'm doing. I'm gonna boost this up a little bit so I can put my head down. There we go. So it picks me up. And let's go ahead and read. I don't know what chapter we're in. Roman numerals. I get lost like anybody else. Okay, there were many other leads to track down. It was a laborious job and not very fruitful. Elizabeth became more and more important, however. Through her interviews dur during her days off from flying for Northwest, especially because of her capacity to relate to other airline personnel, her interest and enthusiasm were increasing. She wanted to learn more, not only about the L-1011 incidents, but about the whole psychic field itself. <clears throat> she began digging up a great deal of background material in the library, matching it up with the details of what had been happening with Easter. She was also good, a good sounding board. We both tried to analyze and compare the thoughts and ideas of Rich Craig and Stan Chambers and those of Dick Manning. There were two schools of thought involved that seemed dramatically opposed. Manning had employed a biblical concept and he felt the psychic approach was wrong. The pilots from New York believed that the modern day medium was a highly ethical person 
who used his ability to become a conscious spiritual and psychic channel. In this way, the medium would pick up feelings that brought information and impressions for spiritual sources higher than himself. Without any prior knowledge of a person's background or problems, okay. this in turn, according to the theory, could be put to use in helping a person with problems by bringing him to an understanding of his own emotional and spiritual needs. Further, this guidance was designed to help another person resolve his conflicts and fulfill his best potential. In a sense, an ethical medium acted as a spiritual supplement to a psychiatrist. The two pilots and others in their, spirit, in their spiritual frontier group saw no conflict between this and the principles of Christianity. In fact, they believed that it was simply an additional way of serving God. They also saw no conflict between modern mediumship and the modern-day technical world. More than that, they felt that the demands and pressures of a materialistic society highlighted the need for spiritual development and psychic awareness. Their own work as pilots demanded exacting technical realism. Their work as mediums fulfilled their own desire to grow spiritually and help others to do so. The crash in the Everglades had dramatized the fragility of physical life. The events that had, fo that followed, that had followed it suggested that there was concrete evidence that there was a continuation of an individual's existence after death, infinitely more permanent. If this was to be accepted as being so, wouldn't it have a forceful impact and bearing on the way people conducted their lives in the fragile and fleeting physical world? If it were clearly evident that the physical body was an idea that continued on after death, that nothing could really destroy it or imprison it, could this demonstrate the futility of wars and violence, wars, violence, oppression? The two pilots in New York and the flight engineer in Boston, the entire scene went far beyond the tragic accident, Flight 401, without any knowledge of the other's concern with the phenomenon. It encompassed all of mankind as a symbol of physical life versus the timeless existence of the individual consciousness. The New York pilots and the Boston flight engineer represented two different points of view, two different aspects of the same thing, one from the purely biblical, the other from the mystic consciousness that led to God. But both points of okay, but both points of view coincided in one area, the need to free the spiritual distress of an airman who kept reappearing on the 1011s and to remove any stigma attached to the aircraft they respected and admired. I was still having trouble picturing an apparition that was solid and clearly observable. I still clung to the old concept that if there were such a thing as a ghost, it would certainly be something vague and misty. And on the steps in a Victorian hallway, I couldn't picture an L-1011 flight deck with a solid form sitting in the cockpit jump seat. I could see, I could see now that if I were going to keep after the story, I would have to learn more about the background and history of the psychic research on the subject, specifically, specifically apparitions. Just how much material, I'm having issues again, just how much material there was on this, I didn't know. But I did know that whatever material Elizabeth and I gathered would have to be from the most reliable, scientific, and credible sources possible. The subject matter was much too controversial from the start to entertain suspicious or, con or, or, or conjectural sources. What we unearthed about the subject surprised us. Most serious books on the subject of apparitions were extremely irritated, but rather dull and repetitious. G.N.M. Tyrell's Apparitions was most, was most per per perceptive and thorough, however, and his theory on apparitions provocative. He threw a sharp lance at the science for dismissing apparitions as distortion of sense perceptions. 
quote, whatever doubts in fact, some, well, whatever doubts in fact, sense perception, he wrote, must also infect the whole body of experimental science, which ultimately rests on sense perception. Scientists, no doubt, discover a great deal by the use of instruments, but it must be remembered that these are aids to the senses, not substitutes for them. As a leading physicist and mathematician himself, Tyrell could appraise both worlds with one foot in each. He defined the perfect apparition as a material thing without a physical occupant. All the sense data of normal perception is present except that there is no physical occupied region. But there is, there is visual, auditory, and even tactual perception in many cases where apparitions have appeared. He also points out that in the majority of cases, the figure obscures the background, thus making it opaque rather than ghost-like. Some, however, were, conven were conventionally transparent. But generally, in the most vivid cases, such as those that had been reported on the Elton 11s, an apparition was, according to Tyrell, a motion picture in three dimensions, and its creator has access to a limited stage property. The fact that apparitions are seen by more than one person is of extreme importance to Tyrell, as it, as it was to the pilots and flight attendants of Eastern. In the cases studied by British Society of Cyclical Research, there were 130 collective experiences. Quote, this is too large a number to be dismissed out of hand, Tyrell says in this book. He does not ascribe, okay, he does not ascribe these collective cases to mass hallucination, but to the imprint of, of a telepathic communication in the form of an ideal pattern, of an idea pattern on the minds of several people to produce them. In the case of an apparition of a living person, the transmitter is a living agent. In the case of a dead person's appearing before several people, he theorizes that the telepathy would have to come from the dead person. He dismisses the idea that a subjective hallucination could spread to others. This, of course, assumes the reality of the survival of an individual's consciousness after death. It also assumes that mind is independent of the brain. To get at this question, Tyrell suggests that we suspend common sense in favor of uncommon sense. The common sense view of time must be utterly inadequate, he writes. Modern science agrees with that, and the best, modern science, the best of modern science deals with uncommon sense. But if individual consciousness does survive after death, what possible form would it take? If the individual consciousness merely merged into a homogenous tank, tank car full of milk, there would be no significance to life after death. The floating about on clouds with trumpets and angel wings was obviously an illogical absurdity. There would certainly have to be more cognate postulates than those even to consider the question. I had run across a very interesting theory on this several years ago, and it made me wonder for the first time whether there couldn't be a rational potential for survival. I felt this way because the proposal suggested a clear theory as to how consciousness could exist apart from the body mechanism. The source was several papers and tracts by Professor H. H. Price, Emeritus Professor at Logic at Oxford, who had been a visiting professor at Princeton in 1948 and at the University of California in 1962. Professor Price believed that it was ridiculous to study evidence of life after death unless we could form a clear idea of what it might be like. It could not be physio physiological, physiological, yeah, tongue twisters, because the body was useless after death. The only portion that could survive it was the individual consciousness. 
What kind of geography could this ephemeral thing float around in to make any sense at all? Professor Price suggested that the body would be supplanted by what he called a higher form of matter, which would substitute for the physical body. The only thing remaining at the death of an individual would be the non-material soul, excuse me, my allergies, or spirit. Although part of that individual dies at death, this part would remain. It was not dependent on the human brain. In fact, it had motivated the brain. But where would this, geogra where would this geography that could house the soul or spirit be? Certainly not out in conventional space. He explains it in this way. We have no reason for assuming that physical space with which we are now familiar is the only space there is. The next world and all that is in it might just be a space of its own, different from, spa different from space of the physical universe. Moreover, it might be a different sort of space as well. And the casual laws there must differ from laws of physics, if such phrases as higher body and higher kind of matter are to have any meaning. Then Professor Price asked the question, if the life after death personality is something completely immaterial, can there be any sort of world at all? Here he points out that our dreams are a perfect analogy for a space geography that doesn't take up any room, that no real estate agent can sell or buy, no armies can fight over, and are limitless in boundary. What's more, this kind of space could easily furnish the background for something as wispy and non-material as a spirit, and still allow it to have a very well-shaped form. Quote, to sleep, perchance to dream, expressed Hamlet's great fear of death, for he was aware that such stuff that dreams are made, that dreams are made of can be terrifyingly real. A sleeping person often believes in the total reality of a dream until he wakes up. Quote, both for good or for ill, Professor Price says, our dream experience may be as vividly felt as any of our walking ones or more so. He points out that the, that, the, that the imagery of dreams takes place in what appears to be real space. The street scenes are real to the senses, the houses, the trees, the fields, the cars, and the clothing. It would, of course, be a, be a psychological world and not a physical one. It might indeed seem to be physical for those who experience it. The image objects which compose it might appear very like physical objects, as dream objects do now. So much so that we might find it difficult at first to realize we are dead. Under this concept, the life and awareness of the individual would continue in the image form, but it would be no less real. There would be communication just as there is in dreams. The communication would probably be te telepathic, and since we have strong evidence of telepathy in our current lives and dreams, there would be no reason to exclude this, to exclude from this concept, perhaps in a stronger or more articulate form. Those theories of Professor William Ernest Hawking, Alfred, Professor of those those theories of Professor William Ernest Hawking, Alfred, Professor of Philosophy at Harvard from 1920 to 1923, fit in closely with those of Professor Price's. Writing in his book, The Meaning of Immortality, without a body of some sort, there can be no personal living. Existence for a person implies awareness of events in time, continuity of particulars, not an absorption of universals or the one. What has perished, quote, quote unquote, at death, is the livingness of structure and function, the organic and personal integration of persisting elements. Our question relates to this perishing, whether it is absolute, cutting through its every strand of personal being, 
most vulnerable through its very marvel of unified complexity, and whether it, too, may be relative, leaving a, a, a germinal stand of selfhood intact. The how of survival is a matter far less attended to by, by, by philosophical discussion, one might fairly say neglected and yet essential to our own inquiry. Hawking states that man is both part of nature and also outside of it. Man has demonstrated that he can often change the course of nature. Like Price, Hawking feels that it is wrong to assume that there is only one kind of space. And also, like Price, he finds a partial answer to dream. Quote, the dream world is not somewhere in the waking world. There is no road or passage, nor any astronomical line of distance and direction. The passage between them is as swift as the change of direction of thought. I raise the question whether we have not whether we have not here something not identical with, but more literally than the journey image. I Aiken would be believable, hinge on the trans transition between this world and another. Along with Price, Hawking finds that dreams can have three-dimensional reality that could allow for space geography beyond our own. Dreams went far beyond memory and imagery and a sense of reality. He dramatizes the fact that space experienced in dreams and our space can't be measured in the same terms. By an interesting example, a person dreams he is in a canoe headed towards a waterfall. He wakes up suddenly. How far is it from the bow of the canoe to the foot of the bed? There's no way of measuring it. If you have a picture of a mountain on your wall, you can measure the distance from the peak to the floor with a tape measure, but it would be a meaningless figure. He asks, how much space do you need for a soul or a thought? How much does a dream weigh? Or the consciousness that part of a person and even scientists are beginning to feel is a part of the brain, body, mechanics. The event of death, Hawking writes, involving the body of the self belonging to one nature system does not necessarily involve the death of the self. Death may thus be relative, not absolute, and the transition in death, a mental transition, devoid of distance. These three erudite and reputable gentlemen opened up my mind at least to the possibility of the L1011 incidents having the validity that the testimony seemed to indicate. All through, all through checking the story, I was still swinging back and forth on the pendulum. The incidents could never possibly have happened. The incidents must have happened because of the persistence of the reports from credible people who would have nothing to gain and a lot to lose by reporting them. The stories had not yet reached the stage where they were embellished by legend. On the other hand, I didn't like getting the material second-hand. The suggestion that I tried getting evidential facts through a medium still bothered me, even though I realized it might be a device for making direct communication. Even if strong evidence did turn up, it would be difficult to cross-check or get across. Meanwhile, I continued trying to probe the rational theories behind the phenomenon. British theorist W. Watley Smith had independently come up with a postulate that fit neatly into those of Price and Hawking. He felt with them that if consciousness persists after death, it must do so in some state of embodiment, since the idea of pure essence is inconceivable. He looked for the answer in the temporary absences of self-awareness and individual encounters during his life, in sleep, in anesthesia, in unconscious states. He contended that there is a fourth dimension that our self-awareness goes into that is not part of our three-dimensional world and that dreams were the best example of it. 
I realized that what I was doing was trying to find a theory that would match the L1011 evidence that was turned up. This was, ne this was necessary because of my doubts, which were considerable. It was also comforting to find rational and intelligent minds that had explored the subject. One of the most articulate of these was the late professor James H. Hyslop. I hope I'm saying it right. A former professor of ethics and logic at Columbia University. His book, Science and a Future Life, was, applic was applicable to the L1011 story, even though it had been published in the early 1900s. Professor Hyslop regretted that. In his time, millions were being spent to explore the North Pole and the stars for deep sea dredging and for studies of protoplasm, all of which searched for the origin of man, while none was being spent for man's ultimate destiny. Yet wasn't this the question that really counted? He felt that, that the psychic field could serve as a bridge between religion and science. He was certain that the contempt of the skeptic for studying apparitions, for instance, was the result of failing to examine the evidence. At the same time, he acknowledged the reasons for their contempt. Some apparitions were the result of hallucinations. Some could start an irrational sea phase for the subject. Caution was important, but should not serve as an excuse for not investigating the serious reports. These should be studied earlier from the point of view of psychiatry or for establishing the evidence of the survival of man after death. Professor Hyslop also felt that the evidence of apparitions appearing uh -huh. The evidence of apparitions appearing simultaneously with death or injury of a person were too frequent and well documented to be coincidence. He also felt that this evidence discredited subjective hallucination as an explanation. He questioned why, as the atom became scientifically known as being closer to energy than matter and therefore more occult, it was less respectable to examine the possibilities of spirit in life after death. He also wondered why some scientists considered it wrong to consider that consciousness was not a function of the brain, but apart from it. With all this in mind, Hyslop went on to examine what evidence there was to satisfy the skeptic. He stipulated two things first. Two things. First, it would have to be shown that an individual consciousness could be separated from its organism to prove an independent existence. Second, it must be established that communication with such an entity was possible. The first class of phenomena that claims to represent evidence of departed spirits is that of apparitions of the dead. If we could assure ourselves that these incidents were plentiful enough and verifiable in any such form as would attest their real existence beyond the imagination of the percipient of them, science might be more strongly impressed than it is with them. He realized in his analysis of the problem that knowledge from beyond the senses must be shown by fact. He also realized that these facts must illustrate and prove personal identity of the deceased. The facts must prove that the source of the phenomena is what it claims to be, and this personal identity of the the, the, the uh, oh boy, and the personal identity uh, of the discernment means that the deceased person shall tell facts of personal knowledge in his earthly life, and tell them in such a quantity and with such a quality that we should not doubt his existence any more than we would if we received the same incidents over the telegraph wire or through a telephone. In this way alone can we show that the intelligence involved is outside the medium through which the facts come. Professor Hyslop saw no reason why telepathy should be substituted as a theory for communication with the dead. 
because there was no reason to assume that the dead couldn't communicate by the same method, especially with a reliable and serious medium. He defined a medium as someone who claimed to communicate with the dead, whether it was through trance or conscious state, automatic writing, table tipping, or the Ouija board. He went on to examine some of the classic cases that fulfill his strict criteria in great detail. Ironically enough, after Hyslop's death in 1920, his secretarial assistant documented dozens of seances with mediums, which brought almost unassailable evidence that Professor Hyslop himself was communicating via the medium and providing information that met his criteria for authenticity. In some of the most impressive of these sessions, the medium utilized the Ouija board. I was intrigued by this because of the Ouija board experience with, Eleanor, with the Eleanor Wiley incident at the McDowell Colony in New Hampshire. I also discovered that Stuart Edward White, the famous naturalist and author who, who wrote The Unobstructed Universe and over 40 other books, had gone deeply into psychic research after discovering that the Ouija board could bring out startling articulate messages from a personality who showed evidence of being from the other side, as psychics refer to this ultimate state of a man's condition. White's books on everything from Africa to the history of the American West were solidly realistic. I was surprised to discover he had delved into the psychic as deeply as he did. It began as a lark. A friend persuaded him and his wife Betty to play around with an Ouija board. The occasion was, was derisive and gay, he wrote, and pretty muddled. It did not impress me much, but I agreed to try my turn, provided my opposite would agree not to fake. They used a small inverted whiskey glass because the indicator that came with the board seemed too clumsy, and White went on to say, Little glass moved, and without the slightest conscious volition of my part, that much I could determine. How much was unconscious muscular action, I could not for the moment decide. After a time, whenever the glass moved away from me, I let my fingers go limp and allowed the mechanism to pull them after it. It did so and once or twice dragged the glass from under them. Excuse me, my stomach. This was interesting. The force that moved the glass away from me was either an outside force or my partner. It certainly was not myself. Here was peculiar, here was peculiar movement of an inanimate object beneath our fingers. The fact that it spelled out simple sentences of whose purport we know, you know, of, of whose purport we none of us had any conscious inkling, was an entirely secondary consideration. For my part, my main attention was concentrated, hang on, was concentrated on the feel of the thing under my fingers. It had, it seemed, it had, it seemed to me, a peculiar thrill of vitality. But I, but I fully acknowledged to myself that such an effect might well have been imaginative following a strained attention. It also seemed to me that its movements proceeded rather than follow, followed even the slightest unconscious muscular pressures. But that too could not be certain. I am settling down details minutely, not because they were unusual. I'm setting down the details minutely, not, beca not because they were unusual, for I suspect them of being about average, nor because of any serious experimental value, but merely to convey a sense of background what later developed and to indicate our own mental attitude. What did later develop was that White's wife, Betty, graduated quickly from the Ouija board to automatic writing, the capacity to act as a channel for an outside force that creates articulate messages 
that has nothing to do with the conscious mind of the writer. The pencil moves without conscious the pencil moves without conscious volition over the paper, often with the subject blindfolded or in a trance. In Brazil, the strange phenomenon has produced some of the country's best classic literature. It is best evidenced in the work of the mystic Chico Xavier, highly praised by Brazilian critics. Stuart Edward White called the entities that communicated through his wife Betty the Invisibles. She went on to record three books full of spiritual insight, revealing that White revealing what White called the Undestructed Universe. Her messages were reflected in capsule from one in particular statement. Listen, there is only one universe. Consciousness is the one reality. Thoughts are things. White's exploration of the psychic field appealed to me because he had approached the subject as a journalist with the same point of view I had, one of tentative exploration. White also reinforced the view that mediums I had talked with insisted was possible. The direct, the, the direct contact, the direct contacting of Don Repo through psychic channels. I was still half resisting this idea. No matter what information I might receive, I would have trouble believing. It would not have to be strong, articulate, sharp evidence without any chance of the material being consciously known to the medium or channel involved. Perhaps I was afraid of being disappointed. I preferred to explore the direct experiences of the crew members or other technical people themselves. I kept reaching for the views of the more technical-minded as a means of assurances. They would be less likely to buy anything spurious or, or specious in such an incredible story. As I was probing into the background and theory of the whole psychic field in connection with apparitions, I received an interesting letter from the FAA's Bill Damroth. He pointed out that care would have been taken because often plane numbers and specific incidents would be confused by crew members, and that, while the incident might be correct, the data associated with it might not. I am not discounting any of the materials experience, experiences because I know they can happen, especially after sudden and catastrophic accidents. It is believed and reported that those making such an unexpected transition to the spirit world, so-called death, find it difficult to accept the fact that they are no longer of the physical world and that they expend great effort and energy to communicate with those left behind, and many times succeed to the disbelief of those who can see and hear the materialization. It would be interesting to talk to the pilots involved with the L-1011 material, to the L-1011 materializations. By mediumship, I plan to see my friend from American Airlines this summer. Perhaps Don Repo might communicate. If he does, I'll let you know. I again couldn't help reflecting how strange this was to encounter an aviation technical expert and two pilots who were mediums. I wanted to get back to more of the straight to more of the straight technical side, but seemed to be reaching a dead end. There didn't seem to be much choice left, and on a strange story like this, it was probably necessary to touch all the bases, including this one. I had postponed it long enough. It was not that I had anything against mediums. It was just that it seemed too otherworldly and certainly not a general. Certainly, you know what's happening. I think my mic is, uh, or not my mic, but my headphones, the cord is getting wrapped in this other cord because every time I shift around it, the headphones crackle and I lose half my hearing here. General custom and journalistic practice. I reluctantly made the decision to try to contact Don Repo Two, through some of the mediums in the Miami area who had generously offered their help. 
there were some definite surprises in store. Next chapter. I read through Tyrell again to try to absorb more of the theory advanced by the serious scientific researchers. The most widely known group of, of cyclical phenomenon is that relating to the mediumistic trance, Tyrell wrote. Since it is through the, this that communications are received, which obstinately proceed from death. He went on to describe three main concerns where such communications were said to be obtained. One was where the medium goes into a trance and some kind of entity takes over the motor and sensory mechanism of the body. Such an entity was supposed to come through in one of the several ways, through voice, or what was called automatic writing, or the Ouija board. It didn't matter what form it took, as long as the messages were articulate and able to be examined and checked for evidence. When this alleged entity comes through repeatedly, it's called a medium's control. The control had the function of passing on messages from the dead indirectly. A second condition was that in which the deceased entity communicated directly when the medium was in a trance. A third was where the medium remained conscious, conscious but passed on the communication directly. In any of these, voice, automatic, voice or automatic writing was considered the most reliable. The Ouija board was considered slow and awkward, a beginner's tool. It was not a toy, and it should be used with care. It could, however, offer strong, it could, however, offer strong evidential material if used correctly. One problem with the Ouija board was supposed to be that there could be frequent interference, much like static on the radio. Correct information could be flowing in when suddenly either gibberish or a false message could come through. This was a, this was attributed to the fact that the other entities that other entities could easily take over and garble the message or deliberately give false information through some unknown motive. In this way, strong evidence and communication could be received and checked out to be accurate. Specific names and places unknown to the operators on the board, which were found to be correct, or personal information that could be checked through a third party involved the operators could not possibly know. But false information could also come through without warning. The good would have to be sorted out from the bad. Because of this, only information that checked out could be accepted. Other information, regardless of its apparent validity, was not to be accepted. In addition to static, there apparently could be a weak signal or a signal that broke up just as in a ship-to-shore radio communication. In this way, letters could be scrambled at the times, at times in the middle of an otherwise articulate message. If this were allowed for, however, and waited, with other valid information, there was supposed to be no need for concern. Tyrell considered psychometry, where a medium holds an object belonging to someone, as another interesting tool. Its function, he reports, seemed to be to act as a link for putting the medium on the medium in rapport with the subject. All we can say, Tyrell writes, is that it points strongly towards the view that there must be a vast amount of something behind the physical object as it appears to our senses. I felt at this point that I was getting into a wilderness as swampy as the tra and trackless as the Everglades. On the other hand, Pat and Bud Hayes of the Arthur Ford, Academy, Arthur Ford Academy were reassuring because of their successful grasp and submersion into the realities of life, as well as their capacities as mediums. The same was true of the two New York pilots <clears throat> and their wives. None of them qualified for the spook and kook image in any way at all. 
J.R. Warden, along with Betsy Wilkes and, and Rochelle, volunteered to arrange for an informal sitting of several mediums in the Miami area. They would be asked to try to communicate or contact a deceased entity whose identity would be revealed to them later. They were to be told nothing of the fact that I was researching the Elton 11 case. Don't forget, J.R. told me, there's no guarantee. We're all of us fallible. Any information you get must be double-checked against factual evidence. You might have to try several times. The meeting was arranged at the home of Norman and Minnie Cooperman. They were a relaxed and energetic couple with a tasteful apartment in, with a tasteful apartment in Miami. Norman Cooperman was a scientist with degrees in biology, psychology, and chemistry who spent practically all of his off-hour time researching the psychological aspects of parapsychology in conjunction with a local university. He had demonstrated considerable capacity for psychic healing. He was not content to leave this medically undocumented. As a result, he was working closely with several doctors so that the effectiveness of his treatment could be checked and certified clinically. The results had been uncommonly successful. The group had already assembled when I reached the Cooperman apartment. There were eight altogether, including the Coopermans. They were sitting casually around the living room and in any after-dinner, as in any after-dinner social gathering. They were a very group. A tall, pale young woman, a young, dynamic girl in jeans, a sensitive-looking black man with handsomely sculptured features, a distinguished gentleman with a shock of white hair, and his wife, plump and middle-aged. Later, Laura Breitbarth joined the group. She was the Eastern ticketing agent who had flown down from New York to visit the Coopermans. I learned that she was considered to be a particularly sensitive. <laughs> Medium. She was a trim, attractive brunette in her 20s. Cooperman, Cooperman began the session by explaining that he was not going to give out much information. The session was to be an experiment to try to bring in someone no longer living. Who may or may not respond. I won't cue, cue you on anything specific, specific, he said. We'd like to see what can come out of free meditation. I hope you'll be free to say whatever comes to your head, whether it seems to make any sense or not. If you close your eyes, if you close your eyes now, take a deep breath for a count of seven again. Relax, continue this breathing, open your minds up. If anything forms in your mind, let it come out. The group followed his instructions, relaxing in a silent circle. There was silence for over a minute. Then Charles, the man with the white hair, spoke. For some reason, he said, I seem to see a beautiful oriental rug. What does that mean to you, Cooperman asked. I'm not sure, Charles responded, but I seem to associate it with flying. All right, Cooperman said, let anything come out. Follow it up. Another oddball thought comes up. The number 900. This also seems to be connected with flying carpets. Doesn't make any sense to me. There was more silence. The group breathing, eyes closed, except for Norman Cooperman, who surveyed them watchfully. After several moments, Jan, the tall girl, spoke so softly she could hardly be heard. I am getting a physical feeling that is not mine, she said. It's a very heavy pounding of the heart. There seems to be help needed, but help is not there. Can you identify who it is? Cooperman asked. It's not I, Jan responded. 
Go deeper into yourself, the woman said. Count and breathe deeply. Speak as that person. I have the feeling of speed. There is speed. Air is rushing at me. There is a mirror in front of you. You are looking at yourself as the sanity. Can you describe yourself? Cooperman said. Tall, salt and pepper hair, kind of falling over the forehead. A mustache. Comes and goes. Broad shoulders, athletic, nervous energy. Do you have a name? Jan took several more breaths and said, I do, but this is known through Jan's conscious mind. I have sensed what the situation is. I don't want to mislead you. Tell us the name anyway, Cooperman said. I learned later that a legitimate medium will clarify any thoughts that come through the conscious level in contrast to the thoughts which he or she believes come through a telepathic channel or a communication from the deceased. Again, there was a long pause. Then Jan said, Don. You are here, Cooperman asked. I'm here, Jan said. Cooperman had told the group that I might ask some questions as an observer of the session. So I spoke up. Do you associate any occupation or action with Don? I asked. Janice knows the occupation from her conscious mind, Jan said. Her eyes still closed, her breathing deep and slow, so I'm not sure of the, of the validity, but I'm sure it's flight engineer. If this information had come purely from an unconscious channel, it would have been rather startling evidence of communication. But since Jan was honest enough to reveal that she was imparting information from her own consciousness, it would make other information questionable, regardless of how well-meaning Jan was. Can you visualize what is happening? I asked. There are people yelling and grabbing at things. Do you identify what situation this is? I asked. It is difficult for me to disassociate the conscious knowledge, Jan said, but it is the Everglades. She went on in the low, soft voice. She revealed a great deal of correct information about the crash. Several others in the group identified with the anguish and pain of the accident as if they were experiencing it themselves. But the problem was that no direct evidence that was unknown to either me or the group was revealed. That could be checked or verified later. Things like the names of members of, of Ripple's family, exact circumstances of his past, sharp technical questions involving the L-1011, personality trait that could be checked with friends, characteristic phrases, and especially actual names of crew members. He had allegedly appeared before on various flights of 318. Unfortunately, none of that sort of material turned up. The material that did come through was essentially correct, but it pleased, however, that but it pleased, however, that no one pretended that conscious information was coming in as a form of communication. Each person in the group stated frankly whenever conscious thoughts and knowledge came through. This gave me confidence in the validity of the group. They were not pretending or attempting to sensationalize. After the meeting, I spoke with Laura Breitbarth, who more or less disqualified herself from the session because, as an Eastern employee, she knew many details consciously. You're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you, she said, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Just before going to sleep last night, I felt I had a very definite communication with Don Repo. He came through, as we say, clear and absolute definite. This was not a fantasy, and the message was that he wants to work with you in making the story clear and accurate. I laughed and said, come on now. You really don't expect me to believe that, do you, Laura? I most certainly do, she said. He seemed very adamant about wanting the story to get out. He's pleased about it. He'll even work with you. Laura, I said, everybody says you're a very intelligent, honest person. You appear that way to me, but don't spoil that image. I was chuckling, and she'd laugh too. All right, she said. Don't believe me. You'll find out.
All of this is so impossible to believe, I said. I don't know how I, will, how I ever got myself into this. She smiled again. All of this is part of your education, your learning. But it's going to take a long time. I also heard from Bill Damroth from the FDA. Did, did you know I knew him? I shook my head. Have you talked to him in the last few days? No. You have a lot of respect for him, I understand, she said. And she was being almost mischievous. He's got an excellent technical background. Knows the aviation industry backward. He wouldn't be inclined to buy that, buy just anything in the psychic field, you think? Again, I said no, and wondered what she was driving at. Bill Damroth told me that Repo came through at a session he was attending. Seriously, I'm not pulling your leg. The whole thing was too bizarre, too incredible. I was convinced that there was honest self-deception going on. It seemed too far out, regardless of all the serious study that had gone on in psychic research. But I could accept that better than that I could a direct contact with Don Repo. If only because the latter would be too for, too too fortuitous, too much of a coincidence, even if there was evidence of it happening. The evidence would have to be strong and uh, excuse me, <clears throat> the evidence would have to be strong would have to be strong and able to be cross checked for me to be convinced. Well, I told Laura, whether you're pulling my leg or not, I'll contact Bill Damroth in Atlanta and find out just what the story is. I reached Bill on the phone the following evening. Well, he said on the phone, you're not going to believe this. And that's why I haven't called you sooner. I was trying to figure out a way so that it wouldn't sound so ridiculous. My friend from American Airlines and I were in a group session and decided to try to reach Repo. They were using the old-fashioned method called table tipping. Believe it or not, there were four of us. The information that the yes and no answers provided was interesting, but again too vague. The, purport, the, 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 the purported communication seemed to indicate that Repo was partway out of the hellhole of the plane when the crash occurred, that he didn't feel Eastern was giving out the full story, that there was bias to it. But these and other answers could not be checked. And yes, and no answers provided by the table were subject to misinterpretation. Damra felt the efforts should be continued to try to get evidential information using whatever method was best, whether it was the Ouija board or psychometry, with the wrecked plane parts or other techniques. I was still half-hearted about the whole idea, and the story still had not shaped up. Let me go here. Clearly enough to satisfy me. On the basis of trying anything once, I made arrangements with Glenn Cookerly a tall, agile electronics expert who spent many weekends hunting in the Everglades on his airboat to go out to the wreckage site. Perhaps we could find some fragments of the wreck still there that could be used in psychometry experiment. Elizabeth Manzoni, still collecting more material, arrived on a Miami layover from Northwest. She joined me and we met Glenn at a small Indian restaurant about 20 miles out of Miami on the Tamamimi Trail. Cookerly, and had his 14-foot airboat on a trailer outside the restaurant. And after a quick lunch, we followed him down to an, east, to an earthen ramp just off, the, just off the trail. It took him less than 10 minutes to launch it in the swampy water by the ramp. I climbed on the top of the wire housing that caged the engine and propeller and sat as if I were on a saddle on the back of a camel and as high off the ground. <laughs> the only thing to hold on to was the metal handle. Glenn sat in front of me at the controls on a platform halfway up the 10-foot high caging, Elizabeth sat in front of him on a small jump seat. An airboat is not built for comfort. 
The sound of the engine and propeller was deafening. After cautiously moving over the 14-foot-deep canal, Glenn gunned the engine. We started skimming over the sawgrass and water as if we were moving over a thick, enormous bowl of water press soup. By the time the ramp behind us had faded in the distance, we were moving at some 50 miles an hour, unable to talk or even yell at each other. Where would appro- we, we would approach what looked like a solid island, and suddenly the sawgrass would part. The boat would be cutting through the middle of it. <laughs> it was literally breathtaking. I dug my heels into the sides of the cage, inches away from the propeller, and tried to fuse my hands onto the metal brace. A small deer bounced ahead of us, veering sharply to the side before it disappeared. Glenn seemed to move through the swamp by, by instinct. There was no observable trail most, most of the time. Nearly half an hour went by until Glenn throttled back the engine, and he began circling slowly. Suddenly I saw a piece of silvery metal, a rectangle about a foot long, from my perch high above the surface of the Everglades. Okay. I did a double take when I realized what it was, apparently a spoiler from the wing of a crashed plane. But Glenn did not stop. He moved the boat along slowly. Then he began tightening circles. Soon, there was scattered debris all around us, much of it visible, through the brownish water, some of it on the muddy surface, or in the sawgrass. Then he cut the motor. The silence was almost a shock. We reached down in the water and began pulling out parts. Much of it was un- unidentifiable. There was an 8-inch piece of a green honeycomb material, a shaft of metal about the, about the same length. There was a section of a duct, a jagged piece of small girder, a white enamel metal triangle. From almost under the mud, we dragged up an intact arm section of a passenger seat. The call buttons for the cabin lighting, for music, for lights, for seat position, for service, were still readable, all intact and reflective in the luxury airliner. There was a soaked leatherette magazine cover and an intact plastic portion of someone's wallet for holding credit cards. It was empty. There was still the odor of jet fuel. In the silence of the bright sun, it seemed almost irrelevant to disturb the area. We selected about a dozen of the pieces and put them in the bottom of the boat without saying much. It was too easy to visualize what had happened on that night nearly three years before. How anyone could have survived in that swampy wilderness was incredible. On the basis of an experiment to check for the strict evidential material, Pat and Bud Hayes arranged to try out the pieces of the wreckage as psychometric devices among their students in the psychic awareness classes at Arthur Ford. The pilots and their wives would do the same with their group in the New York area. J.R. Wooden would also set up an experiment. None of them expected a miracle, but felt it was possible for some information to come through that might have a bearing on the story. About a dozen pieces were sealed inside thick paper envelopes, and two of them, decoy objects, were placed. One was an old wallet of Elizabeth, the other a hose clamp from a boat. The remainder of the envelopes contained pieces from the plane. The students selected by Pat and Bud Hayes were those who had shown considerable sensitivity and psychic awareness. Some were children in the 10 to 12 age bracket. The instructions were simple. Each was to hold one of the numbered envelopes and go into meditation until he felt he was in an altered state of consciousness. He or she was then to let whatever phrases followed from, flowed from the unconscious mind, regardless of what the words were or whether they seemed to make any sense or not. The purpose was to see if any direct evidential information came through regarding the crash or the reappearances of the flight crew that had followed it. The results were strange and mixed. Frankly, I didn't know what to make of them. 
Some were interesting and surprisingly close. Others were not. I made sure to lean over backward to avoid reading too much symbolism into the, into the material that came through. One student came out with the following. Pink, splashed all over, warmth and love ended abruptly, colder. Pain, all over. Whole body dizzy and swinging all over, man dressed in black. Small eye mask, thought. Thought to be guilty but really innocent. Scenes related to passing. Wife and two children, one boy, one girl. Some sort of accident. At night, family may or may not have been with him. There was much material here that could be related to the incident in Everglades on the night of the crash. The same could be said of another reading by one of the Arthur Ford Academy group. Buried in water, sulfur, strong odor, filth, mud, river, incredible audacity suffering. Extreme callous investigation evidence. But some could only apply with a great stretch of imagination or by resorting to symbolism as the one, as this one. Stethoscope. One inch or one sixteenth vegetable detector daring detective maintenance. Police associated with glass door number 831. Box unfolding in a quilt black with roses in the shape of like box. Gold top with embroidered rose. The reading that impressed me the most was done by a 30-year-old mother. She held the envelope and reported the following. An airplane that lands in water. A missing person. Feel as if I am close to the airport. Close to a canal. I see lights, like those of an airport. Then I don't see them anymore. Feel a pain in the forehead and eyes. There is a very restless spirit at the crash site and will not rest until his mother knows that he that he believes the spirit. The mother knows about spiritual things and told him, but he di he didn't believe her. Now he does. I see lights as if I am near an airport, then I don't see them. I feel a pain in the face, a sick feeling. Two planes at night, one following, one following another. Male voice saying, my mother told me about this, but I didn't believe her. She must stop working so hard and she must stop worrying so much. I have seen the light. Now I believe. Somebody must tell her. Please tell her not to cry. I believe. One other reading I had remarkable that had remarkable application. Intense heat, fire, chills, dry, billows of smoke, goggles like flying goggles, uniforms, khaki or green uniforms, water, muddy water. Just the word help. People as people as though on the other side. Like sort of a swampy with like sort of a swampy with brush, night, two men, death, stars, countryside, not countryside, vast expanse of land. A man with a mustache, a dark haired man with light haired man, and after that excuse me, many people, black like charred wings, white like peace. The problem I had with all this type of material was that it was again too vague. If there had been specific names, places, facts, check, that, I, that, that could not be inter interpreted except in clear, traceable terms, the readings would have been of direct value in tracing credibility. As interesting as it was, the information did not go far enough. What it boiled down to was that the material that came through could have applied to one or more people and one or more incidents. As remarkable as the results were, there was also the question 
that the airplane parts were not personal objects, and because of that, would only provide impersonal clues. I didn't know enough about psychometry to assess it in very clear terms. Further, much of the material was being supplied by students and did not match the sessions done by the experienced mediums, such as the Hayes's or the two pilots and their wives. I noticed that when Pat Hayes joined the group in a postscript session, her experience seemed to lend more specific information. Elizabeth was invited to join in to see if further, more specific information emerged. I declined the invitation because I wanted to remain as an observer. Further, I had never had any psychic experiences of any kind and doubted if I ever could. Elizabeth sat in with a group of eight students, along with Pat Hayes. Sessions like this seemed to go at a painfully slow pace, and this was no exception. They sat in a circle and held hands around it, eyes closed. Pat Hayes instructed the group, breathing, breathe deeply and begin to move into an altered state of consciousness. You will feel yourself lifting as you breathe deeply. Let your thoughts flow through you, like a radio. Let them flow from your spiritual society, from the part of your higher entity, from your highest being. She continued for a few more minutes in the vein, and then silence. After several more moments, various persons in the circle began to speak. More information came through in the nature of psychometry experiment. One student came through with a message, The baby lives. Just after he said this, Elizabeth spoke up with a very strange and trance-like voice. Her name is Christina. I get this name very clearly. There was also a Mrs. Jackson, a Mrs. E. Jackson. She paused for a few minutes more. And then in the same voice added, I also get the name Jacobs. I was startled when she came out with this because she is very reticent to speak up in a group of strangers. Oh, wow. And very... Seldom had she spoken with such firmness and authority. It seemed completely out of character. Her eyes were closed. The tone of her voice was flat and expressionless, expressionless, markedly different from her normal tone. I had no research material to check the name she mentioned with me. And at this point, neither of us had studied the passenger list issued after the accident. After the meeting, Elizabeth mentioned to me that she was interested in learning more about the whole psychic field. She wasn't sure what she had felt during the session, but she felt something which was extremely different from any experience she had ever had before. I laughed and said that maybe she'd better wait until I had a chance to check the passenger list. It was possible the names might have just come in from left field and were meaningless. Maybe it would be a good idea not to go overboard. It's not just this alone, she said. In studying the background of this for research, I've been getting more and more curious about it. I'm serious. Well, I said, what you do is up to you. How did those names come to you? I don't know how. I really don't, she said. But I know we're going to find them. Okay, but I know we're going to find them. Correct. I said, you're pulling my leg. Honestly, I'm not. The names were just as clear as if I had written them down in front of me. Then you've studied the passenger list, I said. You're pulling a gag. May I never speak another word, she said. I never even saw the passenger list. You'd better believe me, or I'll be furious. She was serious. I could tell. In all her research, she had been a no-nonsense person. She liked to kid around often, but you knew when she was when she was, and when she wasn't. Besides, she added, I think there are two infants named Christina. Tell you what, I told her. If there's even one child named Christina, and anybody named Jack Jackson or Jacobs, man or woman, I might begin to believe you in this whole strange business. 
Later, we dug out the passenger list and went through it. The version we had was from the New York Times. Of the 176 persons of the known survivors and the presumed dead list, only a few of the passenger names were familiar to me. None were the ones Elizabeth had mentioned. Elizabeth assured me she had not looked at the list at all. What point would there be in self-deception, she asked. We looked down the survivor list. There, in small type, Christina Costado, aged two months. Elizabeth was as surprised as I was. I swear to God, she said, I never saw this list or any list. I believed her. By the time we got halfway through the alphabet on the same list, Elizabeth caught her breath again. She pointed. There's another Christina, she said. Christina Ocho, one year old. Even if I believe you, I said, and I do, how are we sure you didn't accidentally see the list? There are nearly 200 persons on both lists, she said. I could never in a million years remember two names out of it, even if I had seen it, which I didn't. We've got to allow for that possibility, I said. We can't just buy anything that comes down the pike. Have it your way, she said. I don't blame you for being skeptical, but I know in my own heart, and that's what counts. I'm not trying to sell myself anything. Or you. There would be absolutely no point to it. I agreed. We continued searching the list. Almost halfway down the deceased list, we saw it. Mrs. E. Jackson. Neither of us said much. Then Elizabeth said, I'm trying to charge it off to coincidence, but I'm having a hard time. So am I, I said, as we continued searching the list for the name Jacobs. There was none on the passenger list. For some reason, I pulled out some news clips of the crash and scanned those. All of a sudden, I ran across the name Jacobs. It was a newsman who had covered part of the crash story. I handed Elizabeth the clipping and said, I don't know whether that counts or not. Elizabeth looked at it. I don't either, she said, but I'm actually shaking. Can four names or three... If you just want to count the passengers, could they be a coincidence? I said that they could, but that it wasn't likely. Another alternative could be that she had just seen a flash of the passenger list and forgotten it. If this were in a court of law, Elizabeth said, I guess this could be called evidence, but not proof. Just about, I said. I think I'll take that course in psychic awareness, she said suddenly. It might be interesting. If you feel that way, you should, I said. She said it's worth a try. This whole business has got me bugged. By the time Elizabeth fin finished the 11-day trip to Tokyo, she was back in Miami a year ago. There was a three-day intensive total immersion course at the Arthur Ford Academy coming up on the weekend, and she enrolled in it. Meanwhile, she had several long discussions with Pat and Bud Hayes, during which they had felt that she showed considerable promise of psychic sensitivity. Although she might stumble into some evidence for the story as a result of this training, we certainly weren't counting on it. The course was demanding and would run from 8 a.m. until nearly midnight for three straight days. During that time, Elizabeth would be instructed in deep meditation, breathing exercises, and various techniques to reach an altered state of consciousness, which turned out to be similar in effect to a light trance state. Control of the consciousness, however, was always maintained. There would be seven others in the class, ranging in occupation from an electrical engineer to a minister to a cosmopolitan socialite to a registered nurse. I learned the details from Elizabeth later on the theory that almost anyone has, a, has the capacity okay, to develop psychic awareness in greater or lesser degree. The training emphasized the techniques used to lose consciousness thinking, or to lose conscious thinking as much as possible and allow higher spiritual forces to channel through the personality. The ultimate aim was to use the force, the forces thus re 
released for the ultimate benefit of others. Since the Academy was, was allied with the Spiritual Frontier Fellowship, it was slightly oriented toward non-demotional non, religion. Non, I'm having trouble with these long words. Non-demotional. Forget it. Hang on. Um, it was oriented toward non-demonational religious ends in a non-theological way. If a student showed perception and talent in experimental readings, he or she was urged to develop it further. On the last half of the third day, volunteers were brought in from outside for experimental readings. The volunteer subject subjects were asked later to grade the ability of the student on his or her capacity to analyze any problems constructively and the capacity to come up with strong evidential information that could be known in any other way except psychic sensitivity. Elizabeth gave five readings with unusually high scores. I'm surprised, by, I'm surprised myself what came out during the readings, she said. It sounds ridiculous, I know. It wasn't. I'm doing the talking. My conscious mind, I mean, some of the people were actually, actually startled some of the people were actually startled with some of the factual details I came up with. I don't know what else it is, but I know there's something to this. I think I can help people. I really do. Maybe even on the research of the story. I told her that the only thing I could believe was if she or anyone came up with hard facts that could be checked against the record. You're being very negative, she said. Just careful, I said. Are you willing to try some ways of trying to get hard facts, she asked. At this stage, I'll try anything, I said. Okay, guys, I'm going to stop there. Non I can't, you know, it's like, I don't know why I can't say like that that word. I, I just don't understand. Anyway, um, I will see you guys tomorrow at 6 to finish off the book. It says we have 56 minutes left, so that'll be about an hour tomorrow worth of read, and that'll be the end of the book. And, uh, it's been great tonight, so I'm just going to take off. But uh, you see that thing flashing at the bottom? Well, that's because California Haunts is a uh, nonprofit. And, like, my headphones are starting to die, so that's going to come out of my pocket to fix the, to, to get a new set. And they run about $35, $40 on eBay. So, I mean, anything you guys could do to help us pay the bills here and keep the guests coming and all that good stuff would be appreciated. You can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts or Venmo. And just type in California Haunts. That's all. And again, if you're watching on YouTube, please, please subscribe. Because I really would love to have some, some you know, more subscribers coming in. And uh, I think that's about it of the announcements. Uh, we'll see you guys tomorrow at 6 p.m. Pacific. See ya.